0: I picked this so that we might, as a church, end the year on a high note, looking at the character of our great God that we serve, knowing that He will carry us through to the end. That no matter what this next year brings us, He will carry us through whatever life throws at us, whatever He has predetermined and ordained to bring into our lives this next year. So let's look at Exodus Thirty-four verses five to nine. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that is Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses, having heard this, he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So as we get into this text, I just first want to set the scene. This is God's revelation of Himself. This is God's self-declaration of who He is. And this comes right on the heels of an instance where God almost destroyed Israel completely. You see, God brought Israel out of Egypt by miracle after miracle. He brought them to Mount Sinai safely. And Moses went up on the mountain, and the God of all the universe wanted to enter into a covenant and make this people his own people. And so he gave Moses the stipulations. He gave Moses the commandments. And Moses went back down from the mountain, and he told all the people, this is what the Lord requires of you. He gave them the Ten Commandments, among other things, And all of the people said, we will do it. We will obey the Lord. We will do all that he has commanded us to do. And so Moses went back up the mountain to have the the covenant ratified as the Lord wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. And as Moses delayed, as he was up there getting this covenant ratified, the Lord revealed to Moses that the people were down in the camp And they had already broken their commitment. They had already forsaken him. They had already rebelled against him. And they had made a golden calf to worship. And they called it Yahweh himself, a golden calf. And so Moses goes down the mountain. And as a symbol of the people breaking the covenant, he throws the stone tablets down and they are broken Far more important to God was what the people did, the people breaking the covenant rather than Moses breaking those stone tablets. But Moses interceded for the people. He pled with God not to destroy them after the Lord said he was going to. And the Lord relented and he sent a plague among the people to kill some of them. But Moses prayed and the Lord relented from destroying the entire nation. But in chapter 33, if you look back at Exodus 33, this is what the Lord told Moses. 33 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, to your off- saying to your offspring, I will give it. And this is what the Lord told Moses. I will send an angel before you, in verse 2, and I will drive out the Canaanites and all the other nations. He said, Go up, in verse 3, to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff necked people. And then, just a couple verses later, the middle of verse 5, he says, If I were to go up among you, I would consume you, because you are a stiff necked people. So the Lord told Moses, that he was still going to give them the land, he was still going to give them the land he had promised to Abraham to be faithful to him, but he was not going to go with them. Moses could not accept this. Chapter 33, verse 12 in Exodus, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring, this, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Once again, Moses is just reminding God of the promises that he has made. that This is now his people. And so Yahweh says to him, he says, my presence in verse 14 will go with you And I will give you rest. And Moses says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And so Moses is telling God, If your presence is not going to go with us, we don't want to go. If you won't go with us, we'll stay right here at the mountain. But Yahweh told him, I will send my presence with you. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing in verse 17 that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for men shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so the context for our verse this morning is. Moses, asking God to see his glory. He asks God to reveal to him his ways, to show him who he is going to send with him. And that is where we come to our text today. God tells Moses to get two more stone tablets to come up on the mountain. He will rewrite on those stone tablets. So verse 4, Moses cut two stone tablets like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took with him two tablets of stone. And that leads us to our text. Moses is up on the mountain awaiting the Lord obediently. And then verse 5, the Lord descends in the cloud. So this morning, Moses is is asking God to reveal to him his glory. God says he is going to show Moses all of his goodness. What we're going to see in the text this morning is the goodness of Yahweh explained that we might hope and rest in him as Israel did. God explains his goodness that his people might hope and rest in him as they look to the day's ahead as they go forward in life. Just remember, this is Israel getting ready to spend 40 years after their next rebellion, 40 years wandering in the desert. They needed to hang on to these verses. This is who God is. This is his goodness toward his people. And so we're going to look at this in three points, the goodness of Yahweh Point number one is the revelation of Yahweh's goodness. Point number two is the outworking of Yahweh's goodness. And point number three is the response to Yahweh's goodness. The revelation, the outworking, and the response. Let's read verses 34, chapter 34, verses 5 to 6, the revelation of Yahweh's goodness. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So Yahweh here is revealing his goodness to Moses, declaring to him what his goodness entails. He's filling in the details about his character to Moses. And I think Moses got more than he expected more than he bargained for. And just to, before we get into all of the attributes of God here, I want to explain a little bit about what's going on in the background. There's some odd language here that seems to indicate, or as I studied it, it seemed to indicate that there were two persons that Moses was talking to. And out of a hesitation to Uh, come to that conclusion because the, the popular thing to do today is to find Jesus in every text and I didn't want to do that so I even pushed feelings aside of thinking that there were two persons in here until I got to verse nine but I want to just show you what's going on in the background that you don't necessarily see there's some odd language here if there's only one person Moses is talking to first of all it says in verse five Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Now, this is very emphatic in the Hebrew. It says, Yahweh descended in a cloud, and he himself fixed his feet firmly there with Moses. He himself fixed his feet firmly there with Moses. And then in the next verse, you have him passing right before Moses. And so it's very strange how Overly emphatic it was that Yahweh fixed his feet there with Moses right, to pass, right in the next verse to pass before him. So it indicative or indicated that there might be two people here, but certainly nothing certain. It's just strange if there's only one person there. And then there's this phrase, proclaimed the name of the Lord. It was the same phrase used back in chapter 33, verse 19 where Yahweh told him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name of Yahweh. What is odd about this is this is the only place in Scripture that this is translated this way. Everywhere else in Scripture, this phrase is translated as called upon the name of Yahweh. This verb for proclaim refers to calling someone over, to calling out or to shouting out to someone to call or summon someone, to proclaim, or to announce the way in front of someone. But in combination with this phrase, in the name of Yahweh, it is always an expression of worship or an intercession with Yahweh. Think of Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. He told all those prophets, you call out to to your gods, and I will call on the name of Yahweh, and he will answer me. And when he called on the name of Yahweh, Yahweh answered and rained down fire. That's the same phrase there, calling on the name of Yahweh. What is odd here is that you have one person who's identified as Yahweh calling or interceding in the name of Yahweh or calling on the name of Yahweh. But this doesn't necessarily mean that there are two persons here. Look down at verse 7. So I kind of pushed all these things aside. I said, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try and draw that out of the text. It is a possibility, but it's not a certainty. But if you look at verse 7, it says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, this is literally but he will by no means clear the guilty. It's a third-person verb there. He will by no means clear the guilty. So Yahweh is saying in third person, he will by no means clear the guilty. But all throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh speaks of himself in third person. So this doesn't necessitate two people either. But look down in verse 9. This is the kicker. And he said... If now, this is Moses Moses speaking, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. In the Hebrew, this verb for please let the Lord go is a third person verb. Now, let me explain to you why this is important. If you have forgotten everything you learned in middle school English, which I had before I went to seminary. So first person pronouns and verbs. I, me, my, my. If I'm the only one speaking, I'm only speaking about me, I only need first person. If there's one other person, if I'm speaking to Zach, I only need second person. I, me, my, mine. You, yours. Right? Second person. You only need third person if there's a third person. Okay? Make it simple for you. You only need third person if there's a third person. Look at verse 9 again. Moses is speaking to the Lord, and he says, Lord, let him, the Lord, go with us, go in the midst of us. He's speaking to Lord, and he says, please let him, the Lord, go with us. So there is here, clearly in the grammar, two people that Moses is speaking with. You might say, as we get into this, that there is one person of Yahweh exegeting the other. Or you might say there is Yahweh explaining Yahweh. And regardless of what persons are involved here, and which person is doing what, there are two persons, and they're both identified by Moses as Lord and spoken of as Yahweh. And so what does Yahweh declare about himself? In verse 6, says the Lord passed before Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. The name Yahweh, God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. We don't have time to spend digging into uh, to that name much, uh, but what that name reveals about God, I wrote a paper about this in seminary, just looking at that name and what it reveals about God, and what that name reveals about God is that he is eternal. It reveals the aseity of God, the self-existence, the independence of God, and it reveals that he is immutable and that he is good but God had already revealed that to Moses here he is revealing more of his character to Moses in this text in verse 6 right here in the Yahweh's self-description there are no verbs it's just God with a bunch of attributes attached to it It's just stating what can be attributed to God. It is just stating what God is in his person, in his being. And the first thing that he declares about himself is that he is merciful. This word merciful is derived from the Hebrew word for womb. It refers to a tender love, a sympathy, a compassion, like a mother has for a newborn baby. This warm, loving compassion is how God first explains himself to this people who has just rebelled against him. He is a tender, compassionate God who is ready to show compassion and mercy to his people just like a mother to her newborn baby. God is not a cold and calculated God that if you get the wrong answer, you make one wrong misstep and he's ready, waiting to smite you. He reveals himself here as a warm and compassionate God who stands ready to show mercy to his people. He has a loving affection for his people as a mother for her newborn baby. Second, God reveals himself, or explains himself as gracious. This word for gracious is the Hebrew word hanun, which is an adjective that's only used 13 times. This is actually the word that many of our English names have come from. Hannah, Anita, even John has been derived from this word in the Hebrew. It has a similar range of meaning to the previous word. It's often translated with words referring to showing mercy, showing sympathy, pity, or compassion. One theologian says this word means doing something gratis, that is, freely, by pure, unadulterated, good pleasure, It is opposed to the payment of a price and to the recompense of wages and to merit. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. And it is given by the free, unadulterated, good pleasure of God. So when Moses was asking God to show him his ways, I think one thing that Moses was struggling with was God is a holy God, and yet Israel continues to abide in sin. They continue to be a sinful people and rebel against God. And I think when Moses was asking God to show him his ways, he was asking God, how can you as a holy God abide with your people? And it is only because of the unadulterated good pleasure of God that he abides with sinners. It is only by his grace. So the first things that Yahweh declares about Himself is that He is merciful and gracious. He is freely, by pure, unadulterated good pleasure, a merciful and compassionate God. Who is, next in the text, slow to anger. This phrase, slow to anger, it's not not a bad interpretation, but it does lose the picture. The literal interpretation is long-nosed. Someone who was long-nosed would be someone we would refer to as being long-tempered. As opposed to someone who is short-tempered. And the Lord is trying to draw a picture here of his greatness. He is not slow to anger, but he is long-tempered. And this has been made obvious in the narrative. For if God was not long-tempered, he would have destroyed Israel quite a while ago. They didn't make it very long at all before they complained and they didn't make it very long at all before they rebelled. And so if God was not long-tempered, he would not have abided with Israel. So he's explaining Moses his ways here. He's slow to anger. He's long-tempered, long-suffering, and he is abounding in steadfast love. Abounding here is, is a great Translation of this word refers to an abundance in quantity, size, age, number, rank, or quality. It refers to the excess of something. So Yahweh is long-tempered, and even beyond that, he is abounding in steadfast love. And this word for steadfast love, it's what we were singing about earlier, often translated as loving kindness, that if you were to write it, it would take up all the, the ocean's water were it to be ink. All the pages could not contain the love of God. It is abounding. And some say that this is the closest Old Testament term for the New Testament idea of grace. So again, we see phrases, we see words that have similar ideas and they're just piled on top of each other. Mercy, grace, and this steadfast love here. This can also be understood as a loyal love that is undeserved. It's a forever love that cannot be earned. Like David's love for Jonathan, after Jonathan died, he wanted to show kindness. That's this word, loving kindness toward one of Jonathan's relatives. That relative didn't earn it. And yet, because David loved Jonathan with this kind of love, it was transgenerational. It was a forever love, a loyal love, that is of the free will of God to bestow upon whom he chooses. Toward those who fear him, he loves them loyally. He loves them eternally with a love that is overflowing and in excess, and it never fails. Peter Van Maastricht, a theologian, says that this word denotes a kindness that is exercised towards someone to whom absolutely nothing is owed. Kindness that is not common, but extraordinary, eminent, rare, and one that is done gratuitously or freely without respect to compensation. In that sort of kindness, God is spoken of as abounding. And concerning all of these above attributes, mercy, grace, Loving kindness. Peter, Master, ties them all to God's goodness and says, Love, which is nothing except goodness as it is communicative of itself. That is, goodness as it communicates itself is love. Grace is nothing but love that is not owed. Mercy is nothing but grace towards the sinners. And long-suffering, which is nothing but patience that is long-lasting. And kindness, which is nothing but long-suffering with beneficence or benefiting others. He goes on and he says and these are the affections of the gracious god about which Moses speaks of in these verses. So these all these attributes are an explanation of God's goodness. And Peter van Maastricht sums them up as the graciousness of God. This is the grace of God. And there's one final word at the end of that. So we have all these words that are words piled on top of each other. You might say grace upon grace, and then there's this word faithfulness. It's a Hebrew word that carries the underlying sense of certainty and dependability. It could also be translated as true or truth. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text translates it with a word for true rather than the word for faithful. It is the idea that Yahweh is true as opposed to all other false gods, and he remains true to his word and thus is faithful. That's how you get the idea of faithful out of it. But the underlying sense is that he is the true God. He is truth. And when Jesus made the statement I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was not only linking himself with a divine name by saying, I am, but also linking himself to divinity by saying, I am the truth. And possibly here he would have been implicating himself in this text when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Perhaps when Moses said, I want to see your ways, perhaps Jesus was implicating himself here in these texts. The piling up of words expressing related ideas gives emphasis to the picture of Israel's God who forgives and saves, who, ha- who hangs on to his people even when they rebel against him, even when they constantly complain to him, even when they break the covenant that he has graciously made with them, he holds on to them, not because of anything they had done, but because of his good pleasure. But as you read this, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, does this sound like the poorly caricatured mean God of the Old Testament to you? So many people say the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath. And Jesus came and he was a God of love. But if you look at those verses, this is right after a people rebelled against God and deserved to be put to death immediately. And this is how God responds. There is a clear continuity between the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, and the God of the New Testament in Christ. And as we are looking at this being one person of the Godhead explaining or exegeting the other. This is Christ explaining Himself. This is Jesus in the Old Testament, the same God continuously throughout Scripture. These are the attributes God declared of Himself to Moses, and these are the attributes at work right in this narrative. Though Moses asked God to To reveal his ways, he had already done so in act. He had already shown them mercy and grace and loving kindness and being slow to anger. He had already showed them those things, but here he declares them to him explicitly. And this here is a jugular text. It was a Mount Everest of text for the people of Israel. Before I went to seminary, this text didn't even register on my radar. It wasn't even until ordination prep when I had to memorize a bunch of important scriptures and this came up and I was wondering why it was so important. But this was extremely important to the Jews. This text is what they return to over and over and over to find hope and to intercede with. We're just going to go on a, on a brief survey of some of the places that this text is returned to to give the people hope. Look with me at Numbers 14, 17 to 19. This occasion in Numbers is another occasion of Israel's great rebellion. This is when they get to the edge of the promised land and they send spies to spy out the land and the spies bring back an unfavorable report. And the people are fearful and so they don't obey God and they don't go and conquer the land that God had promised them. And when the Lord says, okay, because of your disobedience, I'm going to send you back into the wilderness for 40 years. And then they do the unthinkable. They say, well, I'm going to, we're, we're going to forget what you just said, and we're going to go and we're going to take the land without you. It's just unconscionable. It's unthinkable. But this is what Moses says after that rebellion. Numbers 14, 17 19. 17, and now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And so the people once again return to this text for hope that God will forgive them. Second Chronicles 30 verse 9 is when the people are ready to be taken over. They're about to be taken over by Babylon and go be exiled. And this is another time that they're reminded of this. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children, you will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For why will their captors show their compassion? For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and he will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So not only was it a constant hope, but this was a proclamation for those who refused to turn away from their sin. They always had the, the promise that if they repented and they turned back to Yahweh, he would forgive them. That was right before they went into exile. In Nehemiah 9, 17-19, they're reminded of it again after they have come out of exile. But you, O God, are ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. They return to it over and over and over in Israel as being reminded that this is their God. In Psalm 86 that we read earlier, Psalm 103, verse 8. Psalm 111, verse 4. Psalm 112, verse 4. Psalm 116, verse 5. Psalm 145, verse 8. Joel 2, 13. The people of Israel hung on to this text with their life because they knew this God was their very life. They continued to remind themselves of who God was based on this text right here. This is the text that Jonah cites in chapter 4 verse 2 and Jonah says, I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I didn't want to go to my enemies and preach to them that they might have repentance. He says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah didn't want to share God's attributes with anyone else. He didn't want God to show mercy to the wicked Assyrians in Nineveh. Because he was so confident that, that this is who his God was. It's used again in, in Nahum 1.3. Over and over again, the Old Testament saints fell back on this verse. It was a constant comfort to them that they could always find mercy with their God. And they encouraged those who were in sin to turn away, that they could always find grace and mercy. And not only is this an Old Testament passage that people constantly turn to for hope, but this is the hope John points us to for salvation in John 1 1. Turn over there with me briefly to John chapter 1. As I was preparing uh, this message, Travis, Travis. Uh, mentioned John 1 and said that that Christ is the fulfillment of these verses here. And I read through, I did my exegesis and I read through all my commentaries and John 1 was barely even mentioned in any of them. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll spend a little bit of time, I'll indulge Travis and I'll go look at John 1. Not expecting to find a lot there, But just in light of what I found in Exodus 34, that there are two persons there, one declaring about the other and ultimately about himself because they are the same God. But John 1, verses 14 to 18, remember, John is arguing for the deity of Christ. And it's interesting that he seems to be pointing back to Exodus 34, where we see two persons of the Trinity there. John 1, 14 to 18 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. What did Moses want to see? The glory of God. John is saying, we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, I said all those terms were terms being piled up for grace and then truth. The Son is full of grace and truth, or you might even say, is the fulfillment of grace and truth. Yahweh is abounding in grace and truth, and Christ is full of grace and truth. He is the fulfillment of that. Verse 15, John goes on, he says, John bore witness, as John the Baptist, about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Once again, John is arguing for the deity of Christ, saying he is before John. He goes on, he says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We have all received grace upon grace through Jesus Christ. The law was given to Moses, pointing us back to Exodus. And no one has ever seen God, the only God, who has at the Father's side, has made him known or has exegeted or has explained him. And I think John here in this first chapter of John is arguing for the deity of Christ, and I think he's pointing back to this Chapter in Exodus 34. This is the text that Israel constantly fell back on, and it's a text that we can fall back on as well for comfort because the same God who showed grace and mercy to Israel in the Old Testament is Christ who shows us grace and mercy today. We can find hope, we can find rest, especially when we are broken by our sin against God. Why? Because it's the same God who, even in the Old Testament, loves to relent from destroying men. Even the most wicked of men in Nineveh. If only they would repent and believe. And we can rest assured that no matter what we are struggling with, He is a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is our God. No matter what is going on in the world around us, This is his unchanging disposition towards his chosen people, mercy and grace. And John is telling us Christ is the fulfillment of that. He has accomplished salvation for us. How can the Lord abide with a sinful people because of the fulfillment right here in the person of Christ? We can rest in the fact that this is who our God is. He is the same God that he was 3,500 years ago for Israel. He continues to show the same mercy and grace to us today. He will continue to be true to his word and faithful to his church until he comes to take us home. Whether it is civil unrest and unfavorable or adversarial administration, more masks, more COVID lockdowns, more restrictions on life, whatever 2021 brings, we know our God is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his people. He has promised that the church will march against the gates of hell and the gates of hell will not prevail. The darkness cannot hold back the light no matter how dark it is. And this is our God that we can hope in and put our rest and trust in. God is faithful and true to his word and will continue to be unchangingly. And I don't know about you, but as I reflect on this year and look towards the next, that is the only thing that gives me hope, is remembering who our God is. This is... Yahweh, this is how he describes himself. This is what he is. But then he goes on to elaborate to explain what he does because of who he is. He goes on to explain how what he is works out in the world. And so point two is the outworking of Yahweh's goodness. The outworking of Yahweh's goodness is in verse 7. Exodus. Back in Exodus 34, verse 7. This is still Yahweh declaring about himself, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This verse is broken up into three sections by three participles or three ING words. They all begin those phrases. Keeping, forgiving, and visiting. As I mentioned, all three of these words are participles, which means that their effects are described as continual or habitual. These things are the habit of Yahweh because of who he is. This is what Yahweh does because he is a gracious and merciful God. He is keeping steadfast love to thousands. This word for keeping, it's a strong word that refers to protecting or preserving Something guarding something with fidelity. And the object of this verb is that same word we found earlier, steadfast love. So not only is he abounding in steadfast love, is he long-suffering. But he, that is Yahweh, the king of the universe, who is mightier than all, he guards and protects this love that he has for his people. To the thousandth generation or to thousands. I think it's more likely there's a footnote in your ESV Bible that this is to the thousandth generation. I think that's more likely because this is giving us a picture of how great God is. And to say that God's love is great and it, it extends to thousands is a bit like saying that God's love is so great. It's as, it's as deep as the kiddie pool because thousands is nothing. If God's love only extended to thousands, it would have ran out a long time ago, but it extends to the thousandth generation. God's loyal love does not only extend to us, but it will extend far beyond us to generation after generation until the Lord comes. In other words, God will continue to be faithful. He'll continue to show us love. He's not going to stop being faithful with us. He goes on and says, because of who God is, he is a forgiving God, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And this word for forgiving is a, the the Hebrew language is very concrete. They give you very concrete ideas to help you understand uh, the idea. The word for forgive here means to carry, to lift, to bear up, to take away, to carry away. And so to have sin and iniquity and transgression carried away is to be forgiven. Think of the animal on which the priest would lay his hands on the day of atonement. He would lay his hands on one of those rams and he would confess all the sins of Israel. And then they would drive it out of the camp. They would drive it out to never Return because it symbolically bore their sins and they never wanted their sins revisiting them. And So, oftentimes, what they would do after they drove it out of town would they would drive it out and they'd drive it off a cliff so they could be certain it would never return. That's a picture of God's forgiveness taken away, never to be returned. But He's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. These three terms are probably not all used because God has a particular difference in mind for each of them, though they'd have their distinct meanings. Rather is probably a, a hendidus. We talked about this in the hermeneutics class. It's taking all those terms. They're all connected by the word and to form a larger idea. All three are mentioned to indicate the multiplicity of the sin that God has carried away and forgiven. Alex Luck says this phrase is intended to signify the totality of sins against God and it directs our attention to the completeness of God's forgiveness for those who repent. So while we have iniquity and transgression and sin that we have committed, Yahweh's long-suffering and his overflowing steadfast love and his forgiveness far exceed that. His capacity to forgive far exceeds our capacity to sin. But, the text says, he will by no means clear the guilty. There are two verbs here. That's really all this whole sentence is boiled down to is two verbs, and they're the same verb. And In Hebrew, there's a specific grammatical construction where you, when you do this, it indicates the certainty of something. And so a literal interpretation of this is to leave unpunished, he will never leave unpunished. This is the same construction used in the garden when God told Adam, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. To die, you will die. And here the Lord says to leave punished, he will never leave unpunished. And there's no object here so it the only logical thing that it's pointing to as an object is what came before iniquity transgression and sin he will by no means leave those unpunished and so yahweh says here that he carries away he forgives wickedness rebellion and sin and yet he will never leave those sins unpunished There's a profound truth here that we don't want to skip over. There's a gospel truth here that is veiled. And this is where Christ is even more so the fulfillment of this passage. For how can a just and holy God, who must punish every deed, who says himself he will not leave any sin unpunished, how can he forgive sinners who are wicked? How can Yahweh carry away the sin of Israel? How can he carry away our rebellion and forgive us? Because he will not let one of those sins go unpunished. Alexander McLaren says, divine forgiveness and retributive justice both center in the revelation of the cross. He was speaking of these verses, divine forgiveness and our just due for our sin How can these two things come together because of Christ? No one in the Old Testament was receiving the fulfillment of these texts. But when Christ came, we have the fulfillment of these texts for how a holy God can abide with a sinful people. And it's only because as we look towards the communion table, because of his shed blood for us. He is the fulfillment of what Moses prayed here in these verses. But before we get that, real quickly, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. No one is innocent on this earth. No one is punished unjustly. God does not hold children directly responsible for their parents' sins, but they are oftentimes suffering for them and punished for them in this life. Just look at Sodom and Gomorrah. There were most certainly children there who were not guilty of the sins that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for, and yet they were destroyed alongside them. Or even think of Adam To us, are we suffering Adam's sin? Absolutely. Yet is God unjust for doing so? Not at all. We should actually see this not as an injustice against children who suffer for their parents' sins, but a great mercy of the short duration. Where the effects of sin are only visited to the third and fourth generation, God keeps His loyal love to the thousandth generation. In many of those quotations we read earlier of this verse, they're a call to repentance. The idea is God will continue to visit your sin upon you until you repent. But if you repent of your sins, if you turn back to the Lord, you will find grace and mercy for a thousand generations. It's magnifying the grace of God in light of sin. So in light of this, beloved, let us rejoice in the truth of our saving grace. In this truth, we always have the ability to rejoice no matter what discouragements are in this life. No matter what happens in this life, we have been eternally saved. And for that, we can be eternally thankful. We have been forgiven our sins They've been paid for by Christ on the cross. And now the Lord shows to us an unending love that will one day bring us home to be with him. And that brings us to the third point, the response to Yahweh's goodness. Just briefly for the sake of time, Moses quickly bowed his head to worship Yahweh. In this text, there's only five words in this sentence in the Hebrew. Five words, three of them are verbs depicting him as quickly falling down. Moses hastened to fall flat on his face as God revealed him as such. We ought also, as just an application of this, fall down and worship because we have received what Moses prayed for Israel here. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for this is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. We have received what Moses prayed for Israel here. We have received a pardon for our sins and God has taken us for his inheritance. And as I mentioned, Christ is the fulfillment of, of this passage and we are the recipients of the promises to abraham through christ we have been promised that christ has chosen us from before the foundation of the world the father elected us and he will by no means let us go nothing can separate us from his love he has given us his spirit to continue to walk on this earth in holiness that we might be a distinct people kept for himself He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He dwells within us. He walks with us wherever we go. Whatever we have to endure in this next year, we can rest and we can find comfort in the fact that like Moses here in this passage, we can rest and trust in the fact that Yahweh is going to lead us wherever we go. We have nothing to fear because the King of the universe goes before us. We can rely on him to be the same God that faithfully led Israel. He will continue to lead the church. He will not give up on us, but he continues with us. And this is only possible because of what we are remembering this morning in communion. Christ is the fulfillment and culmination of the grace upon grace that has come to us. He is the reason that God can forgive us because He took the punishment upon Himself and we have received His righteousness. No matter what happens in life, we can always rejoice in that truth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise You. We bow our faces blow to the ground and worship you for your grace and your mercy and your steadfast love, Lord, your grace upon grace to us. Because we are so undeserving of it, Lord. We are just, if not more, undeserving than Israel. And yet you have seen You have counted it to your good pleasure to choose us, to make us your own children. Therefore, Lord, let us rejoice in the salvation that you have planned and accomplished through your Son that we are merely benefactors of. Nothing we have done can be lifted up. May we ever and only in our hearts lift up your Son, and glorify him because he lifted himself up on that cross and bore the penalty that we deserve. And on top of that, gave us his righteousness that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be saved. Lord, help us to go out from here to live as Israel was called to live, to live as Jesus called his followers to live, to be holy among an unholy people. Sanctify us, Lord. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you. And as we become discouraged, return to these texts as your people have for millennia and continue to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.